Today's podcast is brought to you by the American Society of Human Genetics, supporting scientific discovery, education, and advocacy by human genetic specialists worldwide. From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ's Eye on Congress Week Ahead podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. Someday soon, Bernie Sanders will drop out of the presidential race and return to the Senate. But will he be able to keep moving his cause forward in the hidebound chamber? Transgender rights and bathroom access have so flustered Republican leaders that they've abandoned the tradition of open debate on spending bills. But they at least may be close to a compromise on how to respond to the Zika virus outbreak. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, with a look ahead to the week of June 13th, joined by senior political reporter Alex Rorty, appropriations reporter Ryan McCrimmon, and legal affairs reporter Todd Ruger. Alex, Bernie Sanders was back in Washington, D.C. He met with President Obama, Vice President Biden, Senate Minority Leader Harry Reid. He even managed to find his old Senate office. There's speculation that he'll drop out of the presidential race after the District of Columbia primary on Tuesday, but is that just wishful thinking on the part of Democrats? I think it's more than wishful thinking at this point. Um, if you stayed up very, very late to watch Bernie Sanders' uh, speech after the California primary, which I did, um, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily think that um, he sounded like a candidate who, um, despite the math and despite, I think, what a lot of people see as the, the reality, was going to take his fight all the way to the convention. As he said, I, I think we've very much seen a softening in the last few days after the meetings, as you uh, had mentioned with President Obama and other Democratic leaders. And it, it seems like a candidate who, at long last, recognizes that uh, he is not going to be the Democratic nominee for president, and perhaps that any further campaigning, any further attacks against Hillary Clinton uh, will only weaken her and her race against Donald Trump. And, and Sanders has been clear consistently uh, that uh, he abhors uh, Donald Trump um, and will do anything in his power to make sure he's not president. Now, he signaled after his meeting with Obama that he'll work with uh, Hillary Clinton to defeat Donald Trump. But what specifically, what kind of role would you see him playing after his national aspirations are well, doused? There is some hand-wringing that a lot of the most uh, fervent of the Bernie Sanders supporters won't be backing Hillary Clinton um, in her matchup with Donald Trump. It's not that they would vote for Donald Trump necessarily. They just might not vote uh, at all, might not vote for either candidate. And that actually shows up in some of the early polling and is one possible explanation for why and head-to-head matchups, the Clinton-Trump race, is closer than a lot of people think. I think if, if you're the Clinton campaign, what you want Bernie to do is, A, hand over his email list uh, so you can try to tap into that uh, small-dollar machine that he built, right. uh, the likes of which maybe we've never seen before, including President Obama's own campaign. And you want him to be effusive in his praise of Hillary Clinton and, and really sharply critical of Donald Trump in a way that we've seen Elizabeth Warren really uh, pick up the baton and do that a lot. Um, these last few months, he really needs to focus on trying to get his supporters back in line with the Clinton campaign. Uh, having followed him in the House and the Senate, I, I don't see him exactly towing a party line when he comes back to Congress, uh, whether he gets an A-level committee assignment or whether he just hangs around the edges being a scold and criticizing whoever the president is on fiscal policies. Do you see him trying to pull everything to the left in that way? I, I do. I mean, and I think that's a, a lot of the, the reasoning behind continuing his campaign as long as he has is he is trying to pull the party left. He's trying to 
get the party to adopt more of his agenda and why he's going to continue this fight, at least uh, in all likelihood with the platform committee at the Democratic National Convention um, in Philadelphia. Look, Bernie Sanders has gone from a backbencher that almost nobody knew about to a, a rock star in the Democratic Party. And whether or not he has real legislative clout, he's going to have a lot of clout with the progressive movement in this country as a, as a leader. Anything he says next Congress is going to be a very, very big deal, uh, regardless of who the president is. And it should be pointed out, he's up for re-election in 2018 when he'll turn 77. And you wonder if he'll join the list of senators who mounted presidential bids and then found long, satisfying lives in the Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> Ryan, uh, four months after President Obama requested funding to address the Zika virus outbreak, the Senate has actually voted to go to conference with the House, uh, but the chambers have major differences to bridge, and they don't have a lot of time before the Fourth of July recess. That's right. Yeah, you have to imagine that they have to get this done before they leave for the long August recess, which really begins July 15th. Uh, members on both sides have said they want to finish by the end of June. The, you know, it's taken them four months so far. And in the meanwhile, Senate leaders and House leaders have been talking, you know, behind the scenes. So just because the formal conference just started, that doesn't mean they haven't been looking for ways to bridge, as you said, major differences between the House and Senate version. The House passed $622 million uh, to combat Zika, whereas the Senate version was, I believe, um, $1.1 billion. And the big difference is going to come down to offsets. You know, the House has insisted that any any new spending should be paid for with other cuts elsewhere in the budget. The Senate version did not have any offsets. So that's going to be the big sticking point, and we'll see how quickly they can get this done. But if they don't get something done before the end of the month, Democrats are going to continue to hit Republicans for the long delays. And there's the specter of the weather heating up, a mosquito-borne virus, the threat. And, you know, there are caseloads that are growing by the day. Right. The idea was to get this done before the warm weather when the mosquito populations begin to spread. It's already a little bit late for that. So, you know, the urgency continues to rise every week. Now, separately, the House tried to smooth out its so far very bumpy process for enacting spending bills to keep the government running, uh, with Speaker Paul Ryan clamping down on so-called poison pill amendments, those deal-breakers that kept throwing the chamber into chaos. You found that this was quite a break from how Republicans did business in the past, that the GOP has until now been quite committed to open debate and welcoming amendments from both sides, right? Yeah, appropriations bills are typically taken up under open rule, which means that members are mostly free to offer as many amendments as they want to. That was problematic this year. The most recent uh, spending bill on the House floor, the energy water bill, was sunk because of so many amendments that were tagged onto it that really just offended members on both sides. So in order to keep the process going, Paul Ryan, Speaker Paul Ryan is trying to narrow the number of amendments and sort of weed out these poison pill contentious amendments that could turn off members from supporting the final bill. The question is whether doing so will anger members who don't who now won't have as much say as much of an opportunity to have their input in these appropriations bills so that could also jeopardize support for the final bill are these structured rules really going to speed things up do you think it's unclear if they'll speed things up theoretically they do cut down on the number of amendments but really the idea is just to keep out these divisive amendments which are the ones that have been problematic so far
Right, and Ryan could uh, find some dissent from uh, some of the hardline conservatives in his caucus who want to air out some of these disputes, no doubt, before they go home. Certainly, when Paul Ryan became the speaker, he made a big deal about letting members have their say into these bills. So this is a pretty marked reversal from those initial promises. Now, Todd Ruger, the next spending bill up in the Senate is Commerce, Justice, Science. This package uh, always seems to be a crucible for hot-button social issues. Uh, transgender rights will loom large thanks to the Justice Department's fight with North Carolina over a law dictating bathroom access. Uh, what are you expecting there? Well, this is a $56 billion bill that's going to the floor that funds that would fund a bunch of things, including the Department of Justice. Usually there's a lot of controversial issues with what the Department of Justice is doing. The Appropriations Committee, though, has said, Democrats said, this is free of poison pill riders that would uh, invite presidential veto. However, once it gets to the floor, there's an amendment process that anybody can bring that, that could potentially be controversial. And you mentioned the transgender rights thing. Uh, in the, When this appropriations bill was going through the House, Republicans added an amendment that talked about the Tenth Amendment, and that's of the Constitution. That's the state's rights versus the government because the government is going in and suing North Carolina over a state law there about transgender rights and bathrooms. And here in the Senate, you have Senator Lankford from Oklahoma who has been outspoken about the government, the Obama administration, overstepping its bounds and implementing policies without Congress. And he has been critical of the transgender guidance that the DOJ and the Department of Education issued earlier this year about transgender students using the, the bathroom of their choice. And he was supposed to hold a hearing on that, but he, he postponed it, and now he could be using this bill to, to do that. But we don't have any of the, all the amendments in yet because it's, it's going to the floor next week. Kind of a states' rights, federal overreach kind of framing of the debate. Cor correct, and, and basically saying that the, um, the government is, is overstepping their their bounds, and uh, we can put a stop to it by saying you can't spend money to do that. Now, the CJS bill could also take up gun control. Are you expecting Republicans to go there in an election year, and if so, what's in play? Well, I think the, on the on the gun control issue this year, it's really the Democrats that have a lot to say about it. Uh, the uh, Obama administration put forward new a new proposal to to increase spending on background checks for on gun purchasers. Is trying to close this loophole that they say allows people to get their hands on guns without going through a background check. Um, but the at the committee level, the Republicans have kept that out of the bill. Uh, they have no more money for 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 exp you know hiring more agents to do these background checks in the House uh, when the when the Democrats were pushing yet again the uh, no per gun purchases for people on the no fly list which, of course, was controversial last year and, and raises all, all sorts of constitutional issues. Um, but, but, you know, anytime you have uh, the Department of Justice, the alcohol, tobacco, firearms, uh, that sort of gun enforcement, second rights issue, there's the potential for something to, to flame up. 
Moving over to the Supreme Court, which is also in your wheelhouse, the term ends at the end of this month. Uh, there are only a few days left scheduled to release opinions on some fairly big cases dealing with immigration, abortion, affirmative action. Uh, are the justices going to save the best for last, uh, as they have in the past? Right. They always seem to. And a couple of the big cases this year were argued very late in the term. For instance, the immigration case, which is about uh, the Obama administration once again doing an executive action uh, trying to uh, – it, it could affect millions of people and their ability to stay in this country and work. And um, Texas and, and a bunch, 20, 25 other states have filed a lawsuit, and that's what the Supreme Court will be deciding, whether they can go ahead and implement – the administration can implement this program or not. And that, that would barely made it into this term and was argued very late. So you expect that at the very last day of June. And what's interesting about that is it's going to interject the Im immigration into – a debate that's already been pretty heated about uh, Mexican heritage uh, and, and immigration and everything. Um, and uh, and then, a, again, the abortion case, uh, a, a big hot-button topic that could uh, – that both candidates could make hay for – hay with on, on the presidential campaign. And uh, I don't know if we need to point out we're still dealing with the uncertainty of the high court being short one justice, the eight on the bench splitting on some contentious and important cases. Right. And it's clear it's 80-something it's, uh, days after President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to be on the bench to fill the slot that, uh, of Justice Anton, Antonin Scalia, who died in February. And uh, so they've been working shorthanded this entire time. And it's going to be really interesting to see how they play this at the end of the uh, at the end of the term, there's still 19 cases left. How many of those cases will they split? Will they not be able to get, come to a decision because it's four to four? Uh, you know, will they s send more cases back to lower courts, sort of a punt, which is what they did with the Affordable Care Act provisions on contraception mandate and religious nonprofit groups? And, um, and how many cases will they take next year? Right now they have a very small number of cases they've taken, and they're very non-controversial. So they're, they're clearly in a defensive posture being down one judge, and, and all that will play out this month. Legal affairs reporter Todd Ruger, my thanks. Thanks, too, to appropriations reporter Ryan McCrimmon and to senior political reporter Alex Rorty. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for listening. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CQ Now, and you can download our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Have a good week. <laughs>